0: Um, so, we are, <coughs> we are moving to our, um, to our second panel, um, uh, which uh, will uh, look at how U.S. economic policies can affect EU growth and vice versa. But given the fact that we have uh, uh, on the stage two former prime ministers of Europe, I'm sure they will want to comment about the political realism uh, we discussed uh, before. I just want to introduce. Um, Uh, The moderator of the panel, uh, Susan Lund. Susan is uh, a partner at McKinsey & Company, a leader of the McKinsey Global Institute. We all are probably familiar with their analysis. I personally like a lot. Uh, In this capacity, she conducts economic research on financial markets, labor markets, and global growth outlook, which makes her the perfect moderator uh, for uh, this panel. So Susan, uh, you can introduce your guest. And uh, I look forward for, for uh, tough questions to, to them.
1: OK, thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And I want to congratulate you, Andrea, on the wonderful report. Uh, whether or not you agree with the recommendations, it's very well written, it's very clear, and I think very cogently argued. So I am joined by a really distinguished group of panelists. Uh, To my immediate left, we have a man who probably needs very little introduction, José Manuel Barroso, the former uh, president of the European Commission and former prime minister of Portugal, uh, currently non-executive chairman at Goldman Sachs. Next to Mr. Barroso, we have Paula Dobriansky. She is former U.S. Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs. Uh, she is currently a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Um, then we have Gordon Bainai, uh, who is the former prime minister of Hungary, uh, until very recently was the group COO of Meridium, and is now the chairman. And then um, last on the panel, but certainly not last, we have Raymond McDaniel, who, Jr., who is the CEO of Moody's Corporation. So we, st- we had a wonderful presentation uh, by Andrea on the report. We know that the US and EU 27 are the world's largest bilateral trading relationship. They're the, largest, the world's largest bilateral foreign investment relationship. And we also know that growth on both sides of the Atlantic has been rather disappointing since the financial crisis and Great Recession began in 2008. So I want to start by asking each of the panelists to spend just a few minutes saying, what would be the top of your agenda in terms of priorities for restarting and reinvigorating growth in the EU, but also in the United States?
2: Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Uh, So addressing the issue of European Union United States relationship, the first thing is trade, trade and investment, as you said. Even without the UK, the European Union will remain the biggest partner of the United States in trade and in investment. So what we need is to conclude a free trade agreement. I was extremely proud and honored to launch the TTIP together with President Obama. And we were negotiating in good faith with the United States of America. We hope that the United States of America do not give up on that. So the real issue here is not on the European side is more on the American side. I'm going to be very blunt. You know, I left public office. My sincerity is increasing day by day. So, <laughs> I, so when we say here in our task force that, of course, I endorse in general, which does not mean that I agree with every specific point. When we say here that uh, the US needs a reliable European partner, let me be blunt, Europe also re- needs a reliable American partner. We need a United States of America that believe in trade. We need the United States of America that honor its commitments regarding the European Union. We need the United States of America that respects the European Union as an entity. Of course, there are bilateral relationships. And certainly, the United States will develop bilateral relationships with Germany, with France, and Italy, with all the important and not, and not probably so important if, if all have the same dignity, all our countries have the same dignity. But it is important, and that's the first condition And that's a very important point, politically, that the United States recognize that there is a European Union. There are important countries, but there is a European Union. Because on trade, it is the European Union that will discuss if the United States want to have a TTIP. Of course, it has to be a revised TTIP. Also, in Europe, there were reservations regarding some of the initial um, proposals on TTIP. But I think we need it. And I think it would be really a pity if TTIP has the same fate as TPP. Um, and I think it's possible. And by the way, I think that uh, President Trump, if he's sincere, and I believe he is, about the, the promoting growth in the United States of America, it makes sense to have a treaty for trade with Europe, for promote growth in both ways. According, uh, basically, reducing tariffs and basically with some regulatory convergence in many areas. That will be a great boost for uh, Europe uh, and uh, the United States. And I think this is the key. Of course, afterwards, there are all the other issues that we have discussed in the first panel. I can come back to them. Europe has to do a lot of homework. But basically, in Europe, and that's a point that I want to make based on my 10 years experience leading the European Commission, the real issue is not so much in Brussels. Of course, Brussels can always do things better. And uh, I can accept some of the criticisms that have done uh, that are d- done against the European Commission, it's also when I was there leading the commission. But in fact, let me tell you, the resistance to the capital markets, you know, that is indispensable, to a digital market, to energy, are not in Brussels. They are in some of our capitals. That's why I don't share the overall pessimism that I've heard in the first panel. I call it the intellectual glamour of pessimism. (laughs) People want to be pessimists because they think it's more brilliant intellectually. Europe is doing not so bad, after all. Europe is 1.7 growth now. There is no recession in Europe. Of course, there are huge problems, and we are not underestimating them. But in fact, all those that have predicted during the the years and that I followed that, I mean, I was. uh, at the center of that uh, response to the crisis, all those that were predicting Brexit, all those that are predicting the crumbling of the earth, they were wrong. And I think they continue to be wrong now, if they continue to uh, predict the worst, unless, and that's my real uh, important political point, unless things turn badly in France. The current problem of Europe, indeed, is France. Because France is the more central country in the European Union. More important economy, we all know, it's, it's Germany. But in France, in fa- de facto, the most important country in Europe politically is France. And now that Britain is leaving, um, France will be the only permanent member of the Security Council in Europe. And France is the only country, as I always say, that is north and south. Germany is north, Italy is south. France is north and south. La France est incontournable. And one of the problems we have having all de- these last years in Europe is that we have a France that does not trust itself. There is a lack of confidence in France. And without France, nothing can happen. The issue of trust is critically important. Germany will be ready to go further in integration if they trust France. The real problem in Europe is not so much between Germany and Greece. It's between the lack of understanding between France and Germany. When you have a Germany that trusts France, and when France itself Trust itself, becoming more reformist, I can tell you that atmospherics in Europe will change dramatically. Because even the Brussels institutions, and the Brussels, Strasbourg, Luxembourg, are to a large extent affected by the political ecology, by the political system in France. So the, and when we have France does not trust itself, that projects negativism all over the system. So this is the reality. So that's why things can go very wrong, if we have a populist, nationalist, xenophobic present in France, in that case, we will have an existential threat to the European and to the euro. In that case, prepare yourselves for the worst. But if that does not happen, and on the contrary, if you elect in France one of the most pro-European leaders France has ever had, in that case, there are conditions for Europe to go further. And it's not unrealistic what is said in the report. There are conditions. During the financial crisis, for instance, the Commission, myself, we launched the, the banking union. The European Union made progress even during the most difficult moments of the euro area crisis. In fact, today, the European Union has more powers than before the financial crisis. The ECB, in some areas, has more powers than the Federal Reserve of the United States. The single supervisory mechanism, the single resolution mechanism, the project for the capital markets. You know, of course, what we need to do now, and you probably are going to listen afterwards to uh, former Prime Minister Ansip and Vice President of the Commission now. There is a possibility to do things, but that depends on the politics. And in politics, there are near misses, near victories, and near defeats, and that we don't know. So there are huge risks for Europe. I'm not underestimating the problems. At the same time, I believe there are conditions for Europe to prosper and to go further with the European integration process. And I think it will be fundamentally important that the United States support that, because do not forget that. The European integration process started, to a large extent, by American initiative. People think it was after the Second World War, the German, the uh, German, uh, I'm sorry, the the Marshall Plan. It was an initiative of the United States. The United States had the great strategic intelligence of wishing to have a united Europe instead of uh, uh, having a, a weak or divided Europe. So this is extremely important, the messages coming from here, but also the possibilities of working together. Because I also believe, but we have not time probably to discuss this, that today, the most important risks are not economically or financially. The most important risks today are political and geopolitical. And more than ever, we need a strong, sincere cooperation. I would call it complicity between the United States and Europe.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to hear some optimism. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to you, Paula.
3: Well, I, I would first start with the fact that I don't think that there is a silver bullet in terms of the promotion of growth on each side of the Atlantic. I think that uh, trade is one among a number of tools and instruments that promotes growth. And I liked it, uh, in fact, what I liked about the report, and I want to congratulate uh, the Atlantic Council on the report, was the fact that it addressed a number of paths forward, uh, looking at the short-term, the medium-term, the long-term. We know that with regard to trade agreements and the reality of trade agreements, let's go back to the last administration in the United States, it was stalled. They tried to get it forward in 2014, and it didn't. Negotiations weren't moving forward. So the fact is, you know, if you want to genuinely uh, promote growth, I think you have to, in your arsenal, have a variety of tools and instruments, including trade agreements, in advancing growth. So that's the first point I'd make. Secondly, um, I think that it's crucial to also look at the political arena. Look at what it was over these last years I think the Eurozone crisis did impact certainly the political terrain, as well as the refugee crisis, as well as, as Brexit. All of these factors, I think, have had bearing on the question of uh, growth and its path. It, was, it, 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 it certainly, um, uh, those crises really genuinely impacted the political economic uh, uh, landscape of Europe. This year, I think, a third key point is this year, I think one has to look at very critically the fact that there are these crucial elections. You mentioned France, but let me start with the Netherlands. The Netherlands, France, and then Germany. Why? I mention these because also post-Brexit, there is a debate. You know, I don't know how this will turn out, but as you said, it depends on who gets elected and who, who comes forward. But there is a debate about the membership in the EU. It's out there. Um, And it may go one direction. It may go in another direction. Mm -hmm. I state these things as a backdrop here. For then, my point about, well, how does one promote growth? I'm going to pick out one that maybe doesn't always get highlighted um, for a way forward that, by the way, doesn't always get burdened by by, uh, uh, other factors but can actually be well promoted by, I think, reforms on this side of the Atlantic and also in, uh, in Europe. And I want to single out Boyden Gregg, because he had in the report, uh, there were interviews of different task force members, and I was very struck by something that he said. He cited the private sector as being an engine of growth, and how, if given the opportunity, uh, uh, for example, in its access to a varied capital, that actually it could go far. This is one of the co- tangible, I think, in concrete ways forward, looking at the European landscape. Here in the United States, as Boyden pointed out, we have lots of different access to different types of capital. Europe has uh, rules, regulations, and a concentration on banks. So let's look for some creative ways and means, not just only traditional paths because I think there are, and this is my concluding comment, I think there are some political realities that one has to deal with on this side of the Atlantic and also in Europe. And the political realities being the fact that, as we saw in our elections, by the way, Republican and Democrats alike, in this case, our two presidential candidates expressed uh, their reservations about multilateral trade agreements. Uh, Now the new administration, the Trump administration, has placed an emphasis on bilateral agreements. Um, And in Europe, there's the challenge of transparency. There's a challenge of political will towards reform, less bureaucracy. I think there are steps that need to be taken to have a kind of foundation from which to spring from. And we're not there. I think the political environment is such that it does impact the direction. But what is great about this session, I think the report really brings together some very good and creative thinking looking at what is the case in terms of uh, the trade arena but also at the same time looking at uh, some other creative paths forward and one i only mention one i'll mention others as we go along but uh, the private sector is search- certainly an engine for growth thank, thank you. you
1: let's turn to you gordon
4: thank you i think it verse births- Taking one step back before we talk about economic measures, because the whole cooperation in the last 70 years between sort of the ever growing democratic and uh, capitalist Europe and the US was based on a fundamental assumption that we are the closest allies, value based, shared value based allies in the world. And as a consequence of the great financial crisis, subsequent populism. these these fundamental pillars have recently been questioned. If you think about the questions raised about the validity of the NATO, Article 5, and the whole cooperation, if you think about uh, some of the comments that are about whether it is at all in the interest of the United States to have Europe, the European Union kept together, those are very fundamental questions. And that has very strong impact on, on some of on the European public opinion and the European decision makers. Because the whole assumption was that we are bound together. Like in a marriage, when some, something, somebody suddenly asks at the dinner table, by the way, are we still, are we still to, supposed to be together? And uh, that hit many of the public opinion leaders, even in Europe, uh, a bit unexpected. On the other hand, much of the criticism is right. The European party within NATO has not been doing its fair share. So NATO needs some upgrade and reform. But the fundamental question has to be answered because, and I think the original assumption that Europe and US (laughs) needs each other is stronger now than 60, 70 years ago. It's stronger now because uh, I think as a result of the second phase of globalization, or I could say the revenge of globalization is that both the u s and the eu is gradually losing its its global market share, whatever uh, number you look at, and uh, the other emerging uh, forces in the world are not necessarily sharing the same values, fundamental values of democracy and uh, and uh, sort of liberal uh, capitalism and if and, and private sector and if, if that is questioned by others, then all the more reason that based on fundamental values, these two regions of the world should stick together and, and work together and if so that we have to re- reinforce those positive answers to this fundamental question, and if we find a positive answer for that, then we can go into this, and there is a lot to do in that uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, I have to say, Europe has to find its, its answer to this uh, uh, populist trick, uh, but also the U.S. has to confirm where its fundamental uh, interests lie. If that is answered, if that is answered, then uh, I agree with uh, uh, with Jose Manuel that maybe in a new form, in a renegotiated form, maybe with amended uh, substance, or as the proposal says, step by step. Wherever we have agreement, we should go ahead on on trade and and services and and more cooperation, because that could add very significantly to the growth and wealth creation on both sides of the Atlantic. Let me just take one number from this report. My favorite number in this report is the total size of US foreign direct investment in Europe is $2,700 billion. The total size of US investment in China is $75 billion. So where is the fundamental interest? If Europe does well, what would that mean for the American economy? Uh, so I think based on this shared interest, uh, we should go ahead with a renewed, maybe renamed. It's a good political idea, I have to say. It's the political merit of this report, a renamed TTIP. And, uh, but what we learned from this great financial crisis is that political economy is back with a vengeance. It's it's not economic policy that is driving the world. And that's why if you read the Financial Times, you don't understand why Europe is still alive, why the euro still exists for the last six, seven years. If you read that, it it shouldn't exist. Uh, But it does, because it's a political project. There are much more there are interests going beyond the simple economic factors that keeps the euro and Europe together until now. And uh, a lot of, we should help each other on both sides of the Atlantic to keep this political will together. Uh, that's the most important number
1: one step in my mind. Thank you. Uh,
5: thank you. With all of the uh, political and policy expertise on this panel, I'm going to tread rather narrowly on the business uh, side of things and the private sector. A uh, dominant theme uh, in both the US and Europe um, right now is uncertainty. Um, electoral uncertainty, policy uncertainty, economic uncertainty Um, and these uh, obviously uh, interrelate um, and can create a vicious cycle, can create virtuous cycles Uh, but we are in a period um, which unfortunately I don't believe we're going to be able to move out of um, particularly quickly Uh, so it's uh, sort of a, a medium term aspiration. Uh, to move to uh, a a, uh, set of conditions uh, that provide more certainty, which provides more stability. Uh, The uh, uh, business sector, uh, financial markets don't like uncertainty. Um, Uncertainty curtails demand. And I actually think that that is, especially in Europe, um, what we've seen. Um, during this period of quantitative easing is not uh, a lack of availability of capital. Um, it is a lack of demand for the capital that is available. And it's available for many institutions at very attractive rates. But there is not uh, an interest and, uh, or a willingness. Uh, I would say there's certainly an interest. But there is not a willingness to take the risk uh, of business expansion. and and borrowing or or raising capital for for business expansion purposes. Um, From Moody's perspective, you know, I would say we see that in a number of ways, but I'll I'll just mention two very quickly. First of all, it's who is borrowing. And what we've seen um, in Europe, certainly during the period of quantitative easing, Um, is uh, a very uh, strong trend to the borrowers who are accessing uh, the capital markets, the bond markets, are the same borrowers who already were. We have seen absolutely, excuse me, zero acceleration of companies accessing the bond markets for the first time. Um, And in fact, we are seeing more first time companies going to the bond market in the US which is already far more disintermediated than Europe is, as you've heard from the other panelists. Um, and so that that uh, recycling uh, of borrowing among companies that are refinancing debt, uh, maybe seeking to do share repurchase activities, maybe uh, mergers and acquisition activities, but we're, we're not seeing it um, from new companies. And my second point, we are not seeing it for capital expenditure. Not, we're not seeing it for investments in property, plant, and equipment, which is, in my opinion, really the healthiest form of borrowing. And it has been essentially dormant in both the United States and in Europe for a number of years at this point. It is not a driver of, of borrowing activity in the, in the capital markets. And historically, it played a much bigger role. I call it new money borrowing. Uh, new money to put to work in new kinds of business extensions and business expansion activities is the most dormant um, driver uh, of uh, uh, debt raising in, in both markets at this point. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Mr. Bainey, uh, one of the favorite quotes in this report uh, was actually yours. Um, there, is, there are wonderful boxes with the task force members. And uh, you are quoted as saying, so as former prime minister of Hungary, you were part of the integration of Europe, and you saw firsthand what it meant to have a new member state um, and Eastern European countries try to join the EU and the transitions that had to be made. Uh, But you said that Europe's integration is, and I quote, half-hearted, half-considered, and half-finished. I would love to hear more. Uh, it's a wonderful alliteration. But say more about what you consider half-finished, what the key next steps would be.
4: Right. There is a very good reason why it is so. Because uh, Europe is a, is a grand uh, tri- test of cre- creating a synthetic state <laughs> based on very enlightened ideas. But it, it wasn't born out of uh, natural sort of nation building as mostly in history. And so the founding fathers of, of Europe has always uh, reacted on a crisis and created something new at different times. And uh, this something new, it, there was always easier, t- it was easy to do the popular part of something and leave behind the unpopular part. So there are suboptimal solutions. Let me give you examples. We have created the euro, uh, a joint monetary. Uh, policy without a joint fiscal policy. We have created Schengen, uh, which is very popular. You can go without passports anywhere in Europe. Uh, but we didn't create a strong enough outside external border control, because that was, not, that was seen as a national sovereignty issue. Uh, but it doesn't work. Third example, we have created a so-called joint European foreign policy without a strong coordinated European defense and security policy. I mean that's a half-hearted thing because uh, and and they're not very efficient. Foreign policy does include uh, defense and security; otherwise, it's too Sorry. So these are, this is, these are typical solutions, but it's also typical in Europe that when these half-baked solutions, suboptimal solutions, are decided for, then uh, comes the next crisis, highlighting these problems, and then under pressure it is always easier to go further into integration than undo integration because it would be a disaster think about the euro think about greek citizens uh, standing at the atms not able to take their own money out of the wall then it's then turning around 180 de- degrees and accepting the the austerity measures so yes under pressure europe's answer has always been more integration i would expect And that's where I have a debate with the very relevant question raised by the previous panel on political realism, that I think undoing Europe, or significant parts of Europe, would be politically and economically, socioeconomically so painful, for example, the euro, that it would collapse Europe into civil war and unsinkable consequences and lose its status in the world as it is today, as opposed to, finding sometimes a painful uh, sacrifice of national sovereignty in the case of integration does help Europe to answer uh, globalization. I think the EU today, the raison d'etre of the EU today, that it, it is uh, Noah's ark in the flood of globalization. And those who jump off this Noah's arc may, may sort of get lost in the water.
1: OK, another good quote. Um, José Manuel, I want to ask you about something that hasn't come up in either really the previous panel or this panel yet, which are the Brexit negotiations, which supposedly will be triggered with Article 50 this month, we're Mm -hmm. expecting. Um, The report talks about basically uh, taking a softer approach on the part of the EU to the Brexit negotiations. What do you think the right path forward is? What do you think a best case outcome for both the EU and the UK would be um, as these negotiations commence?
2: Um, I think uh, Article 50 triggered, uh, trigger will happen. Mm. Uh, I think Prime Minister May, she's um, leading uh, Brexit uh, inside Britain uh, with uh, wisdom. Of course, she had to unite her party. It's a very ironic situation because Theresa May, she said that she voted Remain, <laughs> so now she's trying. So she is leading exactly the opposite. So it's very difficult for a politician to lead exactly the scenario that, uh, from a British perspective, in Europe, the reality is that there is not yet a consolidated position. We have to wait as. A, uh, we know, for the elections. by the way, I consider that we have elections is good. I will be concerned if there are not elections in <laughs> Europe. And in fact, that was what happened some time before. I think it's important to listen to what Gordon said, and I invite you to think in perspective historic perspective. In Europe, some of our Europe, our European partners, some years ago, they had no elections that were under totalitarian yeah. communism. And the south of Europe, until the 70s, was also authoritarian. So Europe is much stronger today than it was 20 years before. Much stronger. Much better in all, all possible <coughs> indicators. Social, economic, scientific, political. And that's why, and this is not because I'm optimistic. It's not at all. It's the reality. So, and if you go back to the 20th century, to the Shoah, to the, the disasters. What happened in Europe, it was the most important tragedy in the history of mankind. More, more people killed in the two world wars, European world wars that started in Europe, than in all the history of mankind. So that's why I don't agree with those people who are saying that it's the end of Europe. You no, that was a parenthesis. Now, the issue about Brexit is that the European Union, until now, European Union countries to now, they've united uh, in what, for me, it's obvious. It's a lowest common denominator. No cherry picking. That's the message they have conveyed to to Britain. And uh, for a good reason, not because they want to punish Britain. That would be ridiculous. Because it would be punished themselves. But because it's difficult to give a country that leaves a situation that is better than that when it was there. Because let's imagine now that. um, the result of negotiations was Britain to have full access to the internal market without freedom of movement of people. That would be the encouragement to Mrs. Uh, Le Pen to say, I want the same. I want to get rid of uh, all migrants that come to my my country. I don't want those uh, um, citizens from the new member states, because that's the reality. That's part of the issue. That was part of the vote in, in Britain, and it's part of the debate. in." In, uh, in France and in other countries, because we have too many foreigners. And so people make a confusion between what we call in Europe freedom of movement and migration. Because in European terms, we don't consider that migration. We consider that someone that comes from Poland to France, it's an internal movement inside the European Union. While in the debate in Britain, they were considering this as migrants, external migrants. You see? That's the point. So, um, So the countries so far have been um, in the lowest common denominator. But I think, with time of negotiations, I expect both um, Britain and the the U27 to understand that that should not be a a zero-sum game negotiation. Because that's the problem. Mm -hmm. In fact, if, if Europe goes not well, this is not good for Britain. Britain will remain a very important European country, and uh, in fact, one of the biggest countries in the world uh, in economic terms. And uh, the European Union, 27, will be by far the most important partner economically, trade-wise, investment-wise, of of Britain. So and until now, on both sides, there have been confrontational uh, signals that are completely, I think, counterproductive. They need to cooperate at the end for something that is a reasonable agreement. So, an amicable um, separation. Sometimes it happens also in life. I hope that that will be the result. And in that case, of course, I think we have to be realistic. There are negative consequences. That's quite. But we should mitigate the negative consequences. Um, and it is possible. It is possible by a constructive negotiation. And I hope that. When we have the situation settled in France and Germany, um, then uh, with all the other countries, of course, but without those two, nothing works in Europe. (laughs) That's my experience, let me tell you very frankly. Without a pre-agreement between France and Germany, it's impossible to get anything done in Europe. So um, that's not sufficient, but that's indispensable. I believe that it is possible afterwards to engage in a constructive discussion. I think it will be in the interest of all Europe, including uh, the UK, to have uh, this pragmatic uh, adult conversation and at the end uh, a positive result.
1: One quick follow-on question, uh, what do you think is going to happen with the very many people, Europeans, living and working in London and other parts of the UK, and the many Brits living in Brussels and working there I think and
2: throughout. That, that should be one of the easiest points. It's quite obvious. The Europeans living in the, European, in the UK, they will keep their rights. And the British living in the European will keep their rights. It's a so clear negotiation. In fact, as you know, the House of Lords wanted already now to grant it, even without. But the position of the prime minister was, no, I don't I want to keep that for the negotiation. But it's obvious that yeah. there are many Brits living, for instance, in Spain. And so it will become absolutely negative now that they lose their rights. I mean, I think it will be even, I mean, it's a, it will be a scandal. At the same time, those Europeans that are st- established in in Britain, why should they now they put put out? In fact, Britain needs them. Britain is uh, attracting the, a lot of people outside, and it's part of the. Group. Part of the glamour of London is that it has been able to attract some of the best uh, in, uh, in many uh, professions. So, so I don't think that's uh, really... A, I think there will be much more difficult points of negotiation. One of them will be, of course, it is already the financial sector. That is an, an important issue. Because uh, in some countries, in Europe, um, there is a clear willingness uh, not to accept that Britain. Uh, keeps the same rights of access yeah. to the internal market in financial terms that it has now. There was already a debate, by the way, before. Don't forget there was a case of DCB against the United Kingdom because of clearing outside of the euro area. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the European Court of Justice decided, in my point of view rightly, that the. There there could not be a discrimination against the United Kingdom, because the United Kingdom not being a member of the euro area was a member of the European Union. And so the principle of non-discrimination applies. But now, if the United Kingdom leaves the European Union, it's no longer the case. So there will be an issue there. That's going to be extremely difficult. And in fact, now, uh, all the financial institutions that are based in London, American, uh, Swiss, uh, Japanese, Chinese, there are more than 1,000. They are all making contingency plans for that. So that's one effect of instability. And there are many other. So this is going to be difficult. Another, another issue for me, probably the most difficult issue, will be the customs union. Because the, Theresa May, she took, I think, a wise decision. She said, we don't want bits of the internal market, so we want to have a clear Brexit. So um, she does not say hard Brexit. Some people call it hard Brexit. but. Of course, what she said is no, no uh, bits of the internal market, but we can afterwards negotiate some specific arrangements for some sectors. And one of the points is how can Britain negotiate free trade agreements with certain countries if they are not in the customs union, you know, Because the customs union, as you know, supposes a common external tariff. For instance, an agreement with the United States that could be a possibility, an FTA between UK and the United States. Uh, by the way, about that. When I speak about a trade agreement between the United States and Europe, of course I consider it's a bilateral agreement. And that's something that yes. some seems because here in the United States, some people think, oh, we, um, an agreement between the United States and Europe is a multilateral agreement. No. <laughs> the European Union is one trade party. So the, it's impossible for the United States to have a trade agreement with, with Germany or with Italy or with France. And that will never happen. With Britain, yes, because Britain is going to leave the European Union. So, That's different, so the TTIP is different from TPP. The TPP was an agreement between the United States and several Asian countries that was, in fact, now killed. What an irony, eh? when you remember that the policy of the United States was pivoted to Asia. It was a policy of the United States some time ago. See what happened. Now, the reality is that uh, Britain can have there a very important role in terms of, of free trade. Between the United States and Europe. Uh, but if Britain wants an FTA with with China, don't remember, don't forget it, Prime Minister Cameron spoke about this. Yeah. I don't know exactly what the current government thinks. But it is will be impossible to have an FTA agreement with China, an FTA agreement with the United States, and to be at the same time in the customs union of the European Union. So that's going to be one of the most difficult issues to clarify. Ideally, I think we should have an FTA between Europe and the UK with some specific arrangements for some sectors. And I think this is possible. By the way, if the European I negotiated, I don't know how many trade agreements we have done with Singapore, with Korea, with Canada. Afterwards, there was a problem, as you remember, with Canada. We have negotiated with Central America, with Peru and Colombia. So if we have FTA agreements with those countries, why shouldn't we have European and FTA with, with Britain? That's what makes sense. The lowest possible uh, tariffs, the lowest possible uh, difficulties. And then have. Afterwards, some specific arrangements for uh, some sectors. That is, uh, for instance, for research, that's a specific issue, where I believe it's in the interest of both to have a strong cooperation in research and science between um, Europe and uh, the UK. So I think it's feasible if there is goodwill, if there is also some, let's say, wisdom, and and, and we have people reasonable around the table. And I know that many of the people around the table in Europe want that kind of constructive approach.
1: Thank you. I want to turn to you, Mr. McDaniel. You run a global corporation, uh, presumably with very large office in London. Two questions for you. Uh, one is, how do you see the future of London as a global and European hub for capital, given the Brexit um, arrangements? If, in fact, a lot of business is going to move out of London, where? Who's going to pick it up, do you think? Uh, And then the second question comes down to securitization, which is part of the capital markets union, um, uh, which is to promote more securitization in Europe. In the U.S., uh, we securitize mortgages, residential mortgages, commercial mortgages, various other types of debt, Uh, but securitization markets have not really taken off at all in Europe. Uh, And now there's a proposal as one way to unlock funding for growth to have more securitization now many of you in this room may remember that in fact certain types of securitization are what uh, sparked a devastating global financial crisis so start with uh, London given the brexit negotiations and then let's talk about what are the prospects for I'm going to call it healthy securitization in Europe
5: yeah I think the um, I, I think the challenge that uh, London and the UK are uh, particularly going to be facing is that the pace of policy decisions, decision-making, and the pace of business decision-making, I think, are going to increasingly move at different speeds. Uh, Businesses, and this goes back to my initial comments, um, don't like uncertainty. They're willing to put up with some level of uncertainty for some period of time. But eventually, businesses are going to have to are going to feel that they have to start making decisions, and my concern would be that that is going to have to be uh, ahead of uh, the level of certainty that uh, that you'd like to see in the arrangements between the UK and and the continent. Um, what that means, uh, I think, is that businesses are going to have to start making decisions about. Uh, hedging their bets, if you want to think of it that way, um, in terms of getting incremental uh, assets, resources um, uh, into what will be the European Union of the future. Um, this is uh, uh, particularly uh, an issue for, for London and for the financial services uh, sector, but not exclusively. Um, and uh, you know, we, as and you're correct, London is our second largest um, office uh, globally. Um, and we are looking at um, uh, what we are going to likely have to move, and over what time frame. And for a business like ours, that's really just talking about people. Um, we we don't have other assets that we've really got to think about moving. But it's it's what what kind of rebalancing between the UK and and uh, the EU. Um, is going to be considered acceptable um, by EU policymakers, EU regulators, um, the, the people that we have to deal with and what would we be able to leave in the UK? Is it going to be only the business that serves the UK? Is it going to be something broader? you know these are very practical business questions and they're not going to wait for yep. for clarity or, or perfect clarity um, on, on how the uh, the divorce and, and then the, the renegotiated relationships um, are going to work. Uh, with respect to securitization, um, you know, Europe, uh, uh, I think, is of two minds, um, grow it or kill it. Um, and uh, uh, it's interesting uh, uh, to me, um, having been with Moody's through the financial crisis in, in the U.S. and, and now um, looking at it um, you know, with hindsight. You know, certain areas of securitization, most areas of securitization performed very, very well through the financial crisis. It was everything that touched U.S. mortgages that that was just radioactive. Um, So the, the, you know, the collateralized loan um, obligation part of the market, the auto receivables part of the market, um, uh, those performed far, far better um, uh, through the financial crisis. It was mortgages. And so you know, I would hope that you know, there's, there's not a notion of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, um, looking at what the real root causes for the mortgage problem in the US. And, and there are plenty of, of institutions, public and private, that can share in, in participating in the root cause uh, of that problem. Um, but it has also proved a very viable um, uh, business sector Um, for getting money to, for example, small and medium-sized enterprises. It is the most active part of the U.S. securitization market today is the collateralized loan obligation market, and that is dealing with companies, packaging assets of companies that are are small to medium sized for the most part. So it it would seem to be an opportunity um, in Europe for that sector but again, there, there, are some, there are some very strong um, reactions on both sides as to whether to grow it or kill it.
1: Thank you. I'm going to open it up to the audience after one more question for Paula. So start thinking about what you want to ask. I want to touch on geopolitical stability. So in the opening remarks, several of you talked about the shared values between the US and EU, uh, the NATO alliance. We have had uh, you know, a lot of turmoil between Russia and, and the Ukraine. Uh, to the east, and then, of course, ongoing Middle East turmoil to the south of Europe. Can you give us a more insight about what you think the right relationship uh, is to continue to foster that sort of stability between the two sides of the Atlantic to uh, be a bulwark against turmoil, uh, term- political and military turmoil um, outside of that?
3: Well, I think that by all of the statements here, and then what undergirds the report itself is that the transatlantic relationship matters greatly. Uh, Why? Because we are bound by history, by common values, by our political, economic, and military considerations. It goes deep, it goes wide. So I'd start with that backdrop that the transatlantic relationship does matter. That doesn't mean that in different areas that we're not going to diverge, or we may have to, as has been suggested here, go back to the drawing board uh, on, for example, uh, the issue of of TTIP. But I think that this discussion undergirds a a very important point that uh, Gordon made, and that is how these considerations are also very much interwoven with security considerations. Um, In fact, uh, one of the values, I think, of this report, it focuses on Euro growth and the importance of heightening and growing the resources in Europe. As we know afoot is the NATO question and burden sharing. I see this discussion as being invaluable. I think the recommendations are invaluable in all the sectors mentioned. Why? Because it's in everyone's interest in having Euro growth and its resources grown because those resources can, in fact, be invested invested in the, one of the sectors is the security sector, Mm -hmm. and in terms of burden sharing, um, I think which we have a very common interest in. So I think that we're very much intertwined. I think that we do have to look ways for collaborating uh, that are political, economic, and in the security sector, And I don't see us as stepping out of that, Uh, even though there are changes. And I think there have to be, as I've already suggested, I think there does have to be, you use the word political will. I think there does have to be political will and reforms. Uh, I think also uh, here in the United States uh, we're going through uh, reforms uh, and a big debate and a discussion. Our publics, another commonality here, our publics have definitely stepped forward on the continent of Europe and also in the United States in calling for change, wanting governmental change, wanting also greater transparency, I'd say, in many of the issues that we're discussing. Finally, I I guess I would just um, add this, and just to put in the mix, I had mentioned earlier, I do think trade matters, but I don't think it's, you know, there's a silver bullet. It's it's the sole panacea here. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, and I, I, I think the reality is, is, is that that will be back to the drawing board, um, uh, maybe renamed, maybe something else. But I think we should look at other avenues. And I just want to draw out, because it probably won't be mentioned, in the report, it wasn't only private sector, but energy was also mentioned. Uh, two, the importance of energy diversification, how that affects and grows economies, I thought was a crucial one, and also innovation. Innovation is always the backbone of growth in any
2: society, and that, too, was touched upon. I just want to clarify one thing, because mm-hmm. I don't think there is disagreement there. No. I, I mentioned trade because you asked what yes. the United States and Europe can do together. Of course, I fully agree that uh, essential for Europe uh, to promote growth are many other issues that we have to do, namely in economic reforms in Europe. But we were addressing in the panel that I think the title of the panel, what yes. United States and Europe. And that is, for me, clearly the priority. Because it's not the United States that's going to make the structural reforms that France or Italy need. That's France and Italy that have to do it. Now, what can we do together if we want to promote growth? What is the issue that can be done if we want to do it? It's trade. A trade agreement and investment agreement. That is, for me, clear. But OK, we can besides. There are no conditions now, political conditions. But in that case, we have to be honest about ourselves. In that case, we are missing an opportunity. I continue to think that it's essential for growth between the two sides of the Atlantic to have a free trade agreement and more regulatory convergence, and also by geopolitical reasons, even more urgent now than before. Now, if we, Europeans or Americans or both, decide, no, we cannot do it. In that case, I think it's a defeat. It's a mistake. And that's the point I wanted to to clarify. Let let
3: me just, I'm gonna uh, take a 30 second just, uh, no, I know that you said that. I was broadening it, and the reason why I was broadening it was the way the report was structured. The report was structured short-term, medium-term, long-term. And the only reason I said trade does matter, as I've just said, uh, in this case, but I was trying to also pick out Right now, I think uh, uh, there are issues that need to politically be addressed. So I'm looking at it from where we're standing. Are there other ways of collaborating? That was my only point in integrating that in, in that chronology of short-term, medium-term, long-term. Okay, let's take a
1: couple questions and then I'll open it up to all the panelists to give answers. Uh, Let's start right here. And then we'll go over here if we have two microphones roving.
2: Thank you. Hi,
6: I'm Astrid Kimball from Google. Um, we, too, care a lot about trade and the transatlantic
1: relationship. And it was a McKinsey report recently that said that there's more trade in data f- based on data flows than physical goods. So my question is about the EU-U.S. privacy shield. And I'm optimistic for the technology and innovation being a pillar of the EU-U.S. relationship. But could you talk a little bit about whether you're optimistic as well? Okay, great. Now we have a question over here.
6: Uh, yes, then thank you. A- um, Dieter Detke, Georgetown University. I- I'm grateful to Paula Dobryansky for reminding us that there is a struggle going on between, let's say, two forces, right? The forces of a defense of liberal uh, free trade, the liberal world order, uh, transparency, immigration, diversity, and a more nationalistic course. Um, and um, We have to realize that, but isn't it a strange irony of history that it is today President Xi of China who defends free trade, happened in the G20, it happened in Davos, Switzerland, and not the United States where this order was conceived and has produced so much success. Look at income, look at growth, economic growth, look at poverty, look at life expectancy, and uh, how come that we didn't hear that message from the United States? Can you help us a little bit to make it stick again? Thank you.
1: Thank you. We have a question here and then here. Thank you so much. Uh, my
7: name is Thanos DiMaris. I'm a journalist and I present IVY, which is the biggest network of young professionals across the United States. Uh, I'm the policy program director in IVY. So my question is, what do you think about the debate in Europe right now regarding the multi-speed European project, which means that some countries are going forward, some ca- other countries are left behind? And how do you think that this will impact countries which are facing huge structural problems, like Greece, for example, like Portugal, like like Spain. Uh, Do you think that this is a threat for the European project? Because I remember um, with Mr. Barroso, many interviews we had together in the European Commission, we were discussing this issue and how the multi-speed Europe Uh, can be like a threat or something that can benefit Europe. And one second question, do you think that President Trump is um, sharing the same view with President Obama about the interconnectedness between the American and the European economy? Do you see that the current U.S. presidency is fully committed to support the the Eurozone project, the euro and uh, the sustainability inside the Eurozone? Thank you so much.
1: Terrific. One last question, and then the panelists will each get one chance to
5: respond. Uh, Chris Bladowski from Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. I'd like to pick on this question and enlarge it a little bit. Um, When I look at the EMU, there were two types of criteria for admission. There was the political will, and then there were the economic criteria, with the political angle clearly trumping the the economics of the EMU. And with the concentric circles, I see roughly the same thing, that it's very highly politically driven. Is there economics behind the concerted circles? Is there a, a fiscal monetary uh, equation to it, criteria for admission so that when there is a group of concerted circles, uh, the group can rely on sound economics to carry forward the, uh, the type of uh, projects that we saw on the, on the thing, fiscal, monetary, energy, I think capital markets were mentioned there. Thank you.
1: Okay. Terrific. Let's um, let each of the panelists. Uh, you can pick and choose uh, if you have forgotten the questions. I've written them down. Uh, let's start with you, Ray.
5: Um, just uh, I'll make a, a quick comment on the multi-speed Europe, um, and uh, this is not a, a um, Moody's view. This is uh, this is a personal view. Um, I, I think there are clearly some benefits from a multi-speed uh, approach, but. The thing that I really worry about um, uh, just looking from a distance, and I'm not the expert that some of my, my colleagues up here are, is complexity. Um, it is the, the, the process by which uh, the European Union is moving forward is already phenomenally complex. Okay. And introducing a multi-speed component, what I would worry about looking at it, uh, again, from a distance and from a business perspective, is, is complexity.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay
4: I'd like to elaborate on that as well because I think it's this is the news of the week that there was a very strong uh, determination by the four largest members of the eurozone after the Versailles dinner about practically proclaiming that multi speed Europe is the way forward and uh, I think it was long expected and it was long worked on in the background uh, and it's very logical from the from the stalled situation where Europe is in and but I agree, it's already very complex. But uh, Europe, because, as I said, half-baked, half-considered, half-finished cannot stay where, where it is. Yeah. It has to go forward. Multi-speed uh, Europe concept is practically means that the core countries who are Eurozone countries, and therefore their interest is much more strongly tied and handcuffed together. Some feel handcuffed together. Uh, they, they have to break out of this, this current situation. Now, why is it so difficult to do fiscal integration? And that's one of the key recommendations of this report. If you think about it, that's been always the most difficult decision in the history of the European Union because fiscal policy is the heart of politics. Fiscal policy is how much money I take from you and give to him. That's politics, that's national politics. Every year, the budget is the biggest decision in the parliament. Uh, so if you Take a significant portion of that decision making power to the Brussels level, as it partly happens through rules, then you will give up the power of na- national politics now there are two problems with that one there is no European political strong European political uh, identity. there are national identities in Europe, so political decisions are made at national levels that 's one very difficulty there was uh, when Italy got united in, 18, in the late, 1861, thank you, there was an Italian politician who went to the, uh, in, in the first session of the new Italian parliament said, uh, we have created Italy. Now we need to create Italians. And that's an issue for Europe. And identity will develop against uh, common enemies, common challenges, crisis. We are much more European when we think about our differences with China or know, Australia, as opposed to when French and Germans are look at each other. So that's one issue. Uh, in, in terms of creating a, a fiscal policy at, at, at the Brussels level, the other is uh, if there is no stronger leg- legitimacy at the Brussels decision-making level, how will people accept what's happening? Look at Greece. Greece has learned it in the hard way. They have chosen, they have elected three different governments in 18 months. Mm -hmm. And each had to conclude the same economic policy. It's like the famous saying about the Ford T-model, you can have this car in any color as long as it's black. So they kept changing governments, but they they were pushed to to continue because that was the, the European reality. Now, if a much bigger country, a founding country of the European Union will feel the same way, they could revolt. So there has to be a political reform to enable fiscal integration.
3: Thank you. The liberal international order is being challenged. And as we know, post-World War II, that order has maintained peace, stability, and security. It has been an important framework for uh, uh, maintaining that stability. Um, We need to, with our friends and allies, um, stand. Up for that. Um, at the same time, I would also add that the international, global international environment has changed dramatically since post uh, World War II. And with that, should also come some institutional thought being given to institutional change. Um, that's where I would see it.
2: Okay. Uh, regarding the issue of multi speed, that's a very old issue in Europe. There, People are discussing that for many years. There were proposals to have the Core Europe, the famous uh, Schabla Lemmers report. It was made by the current finance minister of um, of Germany at that moment. It was um, ready, I think, in the 80s. Uh, at the end, it was not well received by the smaller, medium-sized countries because they saw it as a way of creating a kind of a directorium. Now. What happens, in fact, is that already today, we have a different speed Europe. We have countries in Europe, countries out of the Europe. We have countries in Schengen, countries out of Schengen. Not only Britain, other countries. Um, and in fact, already today, it is possible from an institutional point of view, because there is an article called Enhanced Cooperation that allows if at least nine countries accept to go forward uh, in any project of integration, can be defense, can be financial, markets, can be energy, they can do it, provided, and that is the issue, that the project remains open to those that wish to join and that sh- ideally should fulfill the conditions for joining. So already today. But until now, it was never possible to activate that article, which is instinct. So at the end, it's a matter of political will. Now, some people in some of the bigger countries and founding countries, they like to think that it's because the European is too big because they don't go further. That's simply not true. The reality is that until now, the protests for more integration were not stopped by the new member states, but by France and the Netherlands. The Constitutional Treaty, remember, it was not the new member states that objected, it was founding members. So that's why we have to be extremely careful to avoid a kind of stratification of Europe. Not only because it adds unnecessary complexity, as you rightly said, and business and private sector investors don't like it. Already now the European Union is very difficult to read. But because of an issue of division and polarization. Now, one, what we have to do, and that requires a lot of statesmanship, what we have to do is to have the recognition of the increased variety and diversification of Europe. It's quite obvious that at 28 or 27, we cannot have the same kind of working that we have when we're 6 or 10 or 12. I remember well that time. I was, I mean, I was a member of the European Council when we were 12. I was a young foreign minister. People now, uh, at the time of Delors, Mitterrand, Kohl, people now tend to idealize the past. It was terribly difficult to take decisions in European Union with 12 It was sometimes not easier than today with 28. That's completely false. The idea that before everything was simple now, that's not true. The conditions of power were today much more difficult. The communication, the media, it's much more demanding. The pressure today in a prime minister or in a commission is much stronger than before. There's a fundamental change in the way of of dealing with power today. It's nothing comparable. But it was not because of 12 or 28. The question is to do it in a way that is not so differentiation, diversification, without stratification, if I can use those words. That is the point. And for that point of view, yes, countries, and that's what the, the, the report basically says. It speaks about concentric circles. I don't, I'm not completely sure that it should be all the time concentric. But yes, those countries want to go forward. They should be allowed to do it. In fact, they should go. If open for the other ones. If not, that will create a terrible mistrust between the countries that are left out. And don't forget that at the end of the euro, that's what happened. People, when the euro was created, the Economic and Monetary Union, the idea of some of the people was for a very reduced number of countries. You remember that. It was not supposed, in Berlin and Paris, that Greece Portugal, Spain, and Italy will be members. Italy made a great effort, it was brilliant champion, to meet the conditions to become a member. But the idea at the beginning was to have a reduced euro. That was the idea. By the way, I read sometimes here that it was an imposition of Germany. It was exactly the opposite. France who asked for Germany. To, to have a common currency, and that was the price that Germany paid to have the unification. That's a, when some people today write and say here in the, in, in the United States that the euro is a project for Germany to keep a competitive advantage and that Germany wants a weak euro, I mean my experience is exactly the opposite. Germany wants a strong euro. Okay? So, and this was what, what happened. Um, so, and that shows why. It was political because the countries, a country like Italy, or like Spain, or my own country, and I participate in that decision, when we, de- we decided to go there to the euro, why? Because we said, if there is an euro, an economic union let's say with nine or 12 countries only in Europe, or, or, te- or nine or, or even less countries, we are going to be left outside. So the core decisions, the power is going to be there. And that's why, for instance, Uh, I mean, it will be afterwards, those countries were extremely clear that they will not accept if they will not join the euro, like, for instance, Spain. Spain was extremely important in all those discussions. So this is what I want to tell you. We have to do some flexibility in Europe, yes, it's obvious, but without meaning stratification. If not, that will create even more polarization and more division in Europe, and that I don't think is in the interest of the Europeans as a whole.
1: Okay, thank you. Well, thank you all for sharing your views and insights. Um, and it's unfortunately time for us to move on. So, um, By the way,
0: let me, of course, thank you, uh, all of you. Okay, no, and, no. Uh, no. But I uh, want to just briefly to introduce uh, Vice, President, uh, Vice President Antti, Vice President of European Commission. And, uh, and commissioner for the digital uh, single market uh, in his capacity vice president ansip is tasked with creating a connected digital ser- single market and making Europe a world leader in information and communication technology uh, vice president AnANsip uh, uh, has been uh, one of the, probably the longest service serving prime minister in European Union as prime minister of his own country Estonia so I'm honored to and over to you, Vice President Ansip, to provide concluding remarks to today. And I have to remember that when we started this initiative exactly one year ago, basically the same day, we had Vice President Ktainen came and launching the initiative. So we are happy you have, we have here uh, you uh, basically to launch our first uh, full report of the, of the task force. Please, the floor is yours.
8: Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for inviting me to speak at uh, the Atlantic uh, Council today. It is a pleasure to be uh, back uh, in Washington, and uh, I'm especially happy that uh, <clears throat> together with us uh, in this meeting uh, there is also uh, honorable former president of the European Commission, uh, Uh, José Manuel Barroso. During all those uh, years, you used to work as uh, uh, president of the European Commission and and I used to work as uh, prime minister of uh, Estonia. Uh, We we tried to deepen relations between the United States and uh, uh, the European uh, Union, and I think we were pretty successful in this. Thank you. On both uh, sides of uh, the Atlantic, uh, in every country of the world, uh, we are bombarded uh, by uh, relentless uh, political, social, and uh, economic uh, forces. These pressures have started to test many old alliances, uh, many long accepted ways of working together. For some, it can be tempting uh, to break away to go it alone and leave the rest behind. But for me, trying to sort out your own problems at uh, the expense of others does not work. It certainly does not work uh, for the common good. To tackle uh, the new challenges, we need to work together more, not less. That means more global cooperation, more transatlantic cooperation, more European cooperation. One might uh, think uh, that uh, the European project is in danger, but in many areas uh, we are working together more than ever. With energy, for example, we are building energy infrastructure that spans country borders. Why spend this money so that everyone in Europe has greater energy security and so that energy prices stay low? EU countries recently set up border and coast guards. Again, why? Because it is more effective to tackle uh, the new challenges together, uh, particularly on migration and uh, internal security. So we work together. The general response of European countries to challenges uh, like these uh, tends to be one of uh, more solidarity, to create new opportunities by acting in unity. That is what uh, the European project is about, right from its start. It is why today we have peace, democracy, prosperity, and employment in a market economy. I know this firsthand from my own country, Estonia, which has drawn enormous benefit from the EU since it joined as a full member in 2004. Since then, Estonia's GDP has grown by 140%. Exports, have almost tripled. Average salaries are now 2.6 times higher than just before EU accession. In fact, every country that has joined the EU is now more prosperous than before. On its own, no single EU country could have achieved as much as Europe has achieved collectively in the last 60 years. We are united and we are working together, but not just internally or for ourselves. We work with our international partners too. That is why I welcome uh, the Year Growth Task Force Report, which highlights uh, the areas uh, that uh, we need to focus on our European and transatlantic cooperation. It points to specific uh, projects uh, that can be completed in the next uh, 24 uh, months. That especially applies to digital matters. If you think digital, you think global. Just Fifteen years ago, less uh, than a generation, digital flows barely existed. They now generate more economic value than traditional flows of uh, uh, traded goods. We are in a new era of digital globalization. That interesting phrase recently caught my eye in a report by McKinsey. The new era it talks about is defined by data flows that transmit information, ideas, and innovation. We live in a world that has never been more deeply linked by commerce, communication, and travel. Today, almost every type of cross-border transaction has a digital component. Data lies at the heart of the fourth industrial revolution. Global data flows are surging. They are part of today's trade reality. Within a decade, they have raised world GDP by at least 10%, 7.8 trillion US dollars in 2014 alone. Data flows between the United States and Europe are the world's highest, 50% more than those between the US and uh, Asia. The United States and uh, the European Union are also the two largest net exporters uh, of digital goods and services to the rest of the world. Not only that, the US is the largest market for many European digital services, uh, and vice versa. So logically, we both have a strong interest in keeping data flowing freely. It is where transatlantic cooperation brings added value to both EU and US economies and societies. In terms of employment, The transatlantic workforce numbers uh, around 15 million with millions more in indirect jobs. Foreign direct uh, investment by the EU and uh, United States uh, in each other's economies directly supports around seven million American and European jobs. As global technology leaders, we share much common ground in our approach. Naturally, there are differences between us as between uh, the countries of uh, the European Union, but uh, there is more that unites than divides Europe and uh, the United States. Firstly, maintaining open markets for digital trade. And uh, keeping uh, the internet as a free, open, and interoperable platform. Secondly, innovation friendly policies that strengthen uh, conditions for digital entrepreneurship, competitiveness, and investment. That means maximizing the positive impact of digital technologies to create jobs and growth. It also means properly protecting competition as well as consumers. And it means that uh, the integrity of data will be increasingly important in terms of privacy, personal data protection, and cybersecurity. As part of our work to build a digital single market, we will be tackling restrictions on the free flow of data, including legal barriers. This goes hand in hand with stronger personal data protection measures. The aim is to raise trust, security, and people's confidence online. Over a recent month, The EU and United States have created strong protective measures for uh, the transatlantic transfer of personal data. Now that the privacy shield is in place and more than 1,700 U.S. companies have signed up to it, the rights of Europeans are fully protected and data flows are facilitated. So, it is vital that we retain and stand by the firm guarantees that were made. I welcome the strong commitment uh, of Secretary Ross uh, to keep and develop uh, the privacy shield. I met with him uh, yesterday and uh, he confirmed his position this message has uh, rarely well received in in Europe. Given that uh, the privacy shield uh, will be assessed every year, I will be directly involved in ensuring uh, that our relations grow stronger as a result. Turning briefly to cybersecurity, it is clear that neither Europe nor America can work in isolation. No country or region can realistically fight these attacks on its own. Maintaining a safe, open, and secure cyberspace to promote economic and social development is a challenge for all countries. We know that there are justified security concerns about uh, the Internet of uh, Things as cyber-physical systems link together. This will not remain inside one country's borders. The IoT is global. As these systems interconnect, they will become smarter, more powerful and more capable. They will bring opportunities, both social and economic. They will also become more vulnerable, so consumers may risk being hacked. Interoperability is clearly important, but so is security, which makes it important to define and establish global IoT standards. This is an area where Europe and uh, the United States must work together with a shared interest. Later in 2017, the EU will review its cybersecurity strategy to strengthen its focus on tackling cybercrime, guaranteeing network security, and working closely with our partners around the world. That includes the United States as a priority, especially given the strong interest expressed by the new US administration uh, to bolster uh, cybersecurity capabilities. There are, of course, other areas where international cooperation is needed. Take uh, internet governance, where Europe and the United States can stand together to create a leadership model for the world here, both sites already work well together to secure an open internet. I trust this cooperation will continue and making it possible to develop innovative services provided that uh, they do not harm uh, the, the internet's availability and quality. The smooth transition for after uh, Uh, The contract expired between the U.S. uh, Department of Commerce uh, and ICANN allowed us uh, to retain the multi-stakeholder approach uh, to Internet management. The alternative meant leaving it uh, intergovernmental process potentially more arbitrary. Let me mention another area where we need to need good transatl- uh, transatlantic uh, cooperation, 5G. For Europe, one of our primary concern is to avoid global fragmentation, particularly for spectrum selection and standards. In fact, the glo- global The goal is to achieve maximum global alignment. While I know we have differences in approach, I would like to see moves towards achieving a more multilateral consensus. Ladies and gentlemen, I said earlier that uh, there is more that unites us than divides us. Europe and uh, the United States have a long history um, of deep political and economic ties. As I have described, the major data flows between us (coughs) show that uh, these strong links also extend to the uh, digital realm. By working together, Europe and uh, the United States will strengthen trust and confidence in the online world as new technologies emerge and develop. That is what will drive our digital future, building on our long-standing uh, history of trust, cooperation and mutual understanding to further uh, the global digital
0: market. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Vice President, for your comments and uh, uh, for joining us uh, today in this timely moment uh, for U.S.-EU relation. Uh, we really look forward to continue our work with, uh, with the European Commission, and thank you very much for uh, spending three and a half hours at the Atlantic Council. It's a lot, it's not for our standard. We usually keep things very short, but uh, we had very good panels, some very good intervention, and very good questions. So we look forward to see you uh, next time to our uh, next event, likely during the spring meetings of the IMF World Bank. Thanks again.